so she gave us a lot of interesting information that isn't even released yet, which is great. Yeah. Because it's a scoop. Right. And not only, yeah, it's a <laughs> scoop, but it, it sounds like a lot of the questions that, that we had are going to be answered. Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto, here with my co-host... Don't read that. He's not here. Not Dr. Paul Williams. That's right, he's gone. But Dr. Stuart Brigham is here. That's me. How about Dr. Tony Sideri? Nope. On this episode, our guest is Dr. Pauline Camacho. Dr. Camacho is an endocrinologist at Loyola University Medical Center in Illinois, where she is a professor of medicine and director of the Loyola University Osteoporosis and Metabolic Bone Disease Center, and is also the program director for the Endocrinology Fellowship Program. In addition, she is the current president of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. That's right. And has, and has published uh, three books, at least three books that I'm aware of, and recently published guidelines on osteoporosis, which is the topic of this discussion. We ask her all the questions that come up frequently in clinic, uh, and hopefully you will find this very helpful as I did. That's what right. about you, Stuart? I think you just need to listen to the podcast instead of reading the uh, textbook uh, chapter on, was it bone mineral disorders, uh, unspecified site, unspecified location, unspecified bone mineral density? I think it's what it's called now. I think that's the ICD-10 code. That's right. Yes. I'm so thankful for ICD-10. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's always really fun to code osteoporosis with pathologic fracture. Then, I don't know what to code. I don't know where to code. And sort through a thousand choices. And that question is not answered in this podcast. We need to come up with a different podcast where we actually talk to someone about ICD-10. I think it'd be wonderful. Especially, if I just... think I think you're our guy, Stuart. I no. know you've read the. I know you've read uh, the coding handbook. Yeah. Well, cover to cover. Maybe. Anyways, so listen to this podcast and break a leg. All right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Matt Watto here with Stuart Brigham. How are you doing? And we are very glad to have with us tonight Dr. Pauline Camacho from Loyola in Chicago and also of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. Hi, Dr. Camacho. How are you? We're doing great. Thanks for having me uh, in your show. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, this is uh, really a pleasure. I've been waiting a long time to uh, ask ask some of these questions here, uh, mostly because <laughs> I get these so often uh, in the teaching clinic, and I'm not sure that I'm giving the right answer at this time. Yeah, I think certainly there's been a lot of controversies around calcium and vitamin D and osteoporosis therapy, and uh, I'm very happy to answer your questions so we can clarify a lot of these issues for the audience. At Cashlack, everyone seems to be on the high-dose vitamin D or at least some, some vitamin D regardless of their age. So uh, what do you think of that practice where just kind of like all adults are, are taking vitamin D daily? Well, I think that uh, for the general population, and you'll see this in the 2016 um, version of the ACE guidelines for postmenopausal osteoporosis, we are recommending uh, 1 to 2,000 IU. Um, but 
um, probably to take it one step further, if you are going to measure vitamin D levels, the optimum level is between 30 to 50 nanogram per ml. And whatever, if it's 1000 or 800 IU that takes them to that range, then that's the right dose for them. There will, of course, be some special um, patients with malabsorption or gastric bypass who will require higher doses of vitamin D. And is there, should we be concerned? There, there's been two large studies that I'm aware of. I think one was a couple of years back with the 500,000 given once a year. And then more recently uh, from, from JAM Internal Medicine this year, the, the 60,000 units given once monthly, and they s- seem to have an association with falls. Is that a real concern? Right, right. So the first one, when that study came out, I was concerned. I'm like, I thought to myself that I would never, ever give 500,000 international units of vitamin D. I think that, uh, you know, in the first couple of days or weeks, it's very possible to induce hypercalcemia with that kind of dosing. And I don't know if they ever figured out uh, what caused the falls, but I would certainly consider fluctuating situations in calcium level and, you know, any effects on the elderly um, as a possible high up there, you know, as a reason for the falls. Uh, With regards to the more recent study, I looked at this closely as well. And what puzzles me is that this is the kind of dose that we use in our practice, right? 1000 IU, 2000 IU per day, which trans, we also use, I also use 50,000 IU once monthly or every other week. And I don't see this kind of, um, you know, uh, problem. And in fact, most of the time, clinically, we, we hear people reporting that they feel better and they feel stronger. So I'm not really sure um, how this translates to practice. But in the multiple thousands of patients that I've treated, I have not ever seen this uh, issue. And what what do you think about the differences between the absorption between cholecalciferol and ergocalciferol? Do you prefer one over the other? And why? You know, honestly, um, many years ago, uh, there were a number of studies that looked at D2 versus D3, and D3 seemed to have an advantage um, in terms of, you know, uh, the levels and duration of uh, effect. Uh, But in the elderly, I use a lot of 50,000 IU of D2. And the reason for that is that these, it's hard to find vitamin D3 in that dose uh, over the counter. Uh, there is, you know, one, one brand and manufacturer that I use for D3 online. My patients who have access and they can get it, that's fine. I think that's better than D2. But with the D2 that I use, I'm able to achieve good levels. I'm able to suppress parathyroid hormone levels effectively when there's secondary hyperparathyroidism. And even patients who have, say, hypocalciuria, I see the improvement. So uh, I think both of them work. And if you were to look closely, maybe one would have an advantage. But, you know, just go with whatever is most accessible and most convenient. Yeah. Now, our facility recently moved over from uh, prescribing ergocalciferol or D2 to cholecalciferol or D3. But there are, there are many different uh, facilities out there that actually 
still have ergocalciferol on formulary, are there any specific patient populations that you would recommend replacing their vitamin D with a high dosage cholecalciferol or vitamin D3? Um, I would say when you're dealing with malabsorbers, uh, celiac, Crohn's, gastric bypass, when you're going to be needing all the help that you can in increasing that calcium absorption and and getting the D absorbed, then D3 would probably be better. Um, In the general population, people with good kidney function, good absorption, the difference is uh, hardly noticeable. I see a fair amount of patients uh, with with vitamin D levels uh, under 20, like 12 or 8 or 6. Should all those patients be on kind of more, do some of those patients need to be on 50,000 more than the, just the once a month? Um, I think that the advantage of using, of loading them is you're going to get to, uh, you know, your targets much faster, but it's certainly possible to get to your target of 30 to 50 nanogram per ml with lower doses taken, you know, um, daily. Uh, The other thing that I recommend if you see levels that low is you should get a parathyroid hormone level because, uh, you know, your goal should not just be to normalize the vitamin D level, but to also correct the secondary hyperparathyroidism. And it's easier to get to correct whenever the PTH is high. uh, That means it denotes kind of a higher severity to uh, the vitamin D deficiency. And that's when you may need a higher doses or it'll take forever (laughs) to correct. Okay, I see. And uh, since I know we have limited time, I I do want to ask about about calcium because uh, I became confused about this issue when, so first of all, I'll say that the majority of the patients I see over 50, uh, mostly mostly women, they're all on calcium, and even some men over 50, who, and some of them have no, no bone disease, no osteopenia, no osteoporosis. So who, who should we be treating with supplemental calcium? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, a lot of controversy about whether calcium supplements uh, increase cardiovascular events. Um, if you read the guidelines of ACE, there's a section in there on, uh, you know, looking at all the different studies. There were also a number of studies that did not show increased cardiovascular events, by the way. So I think it's still up in the air and it's still quite controversial. So what we recommend is um, for postmenopausal women, the total intake should be 1,200 milligrams a day. And that can come from diet. If you can get all four servings and drink four glasses of milk, by all means, that's fine for you. But a lot of people cannot get beyond 600 milligrams nutritionally, and therefore they're the ones that need supplemental calcium. For men, it's about 1,000 milligrams that is recommended. I mean, just like we need a minimum amount of potassium or magnesium, for optimum bone health, we also need to sustain and maintain a certain amount of calcium intake, right? So otherwise, if you're calcium deficient, then that negative balance will lead to increased bone resorption and, you know, increased uh, bone breakdown. 
and and this the article that I the there were two large meta analysis from a British Medical Journal in September 2015, and I, I, I one of those was looking at uh, increase in bone mineral density on with people on calcium, and the other one was looking at fracture risk, and those were mm-hmm. from what I remember fairly negative studies, and those are the ones I was saying that were confusing me as to whether or not I was hurting people by doing this because there are, of course, potential side effects. Mostly I, I think of like malabsorption of other medications like Synthroid or um, or co- causing constipation in my elderly folks. Right, right. So uh, when you are treating someone with osteoporosis, we all know, you know, those of us who see a lot of this, that the effect of calcium on reversing bone loss, on decreasing bone resorption is minimal. But your drugs are not going to work if your patient is calcium deficient. And so you, they have to be sufficient in calcium. I think that you're, you know, if, you, if you're going to prescribe an expensive medication, you have to give them the building blocks, calcium, phosphorus. Uh, and in fact, these drugs can be very harmful if given in to patients who are calcium deficient, particularly with the injectables, denosumab, zoledronic acid, um, give that to a vitamin D deficient person and you can really uh, cause uh, pretty serious hypocalcemia. So the way I say it, and it may help the others too, when I tell my patients on a scale of 10, when, you know, pharmacologic therapy, maybe a five or six, which is 50 to 60% fracture risk reduction, calcium is going to be one to two. It's not going to be enough. There will be patients out there who will say, I just want to take calcium for my osteoporosis. It's not enough. Right. And that also begs the question. Uh, so between calcium carbonate and calcium citrate, I generally use calcium citrate for my patients that are on PPIs or high dosage H2 blockers. Mm-hmm. What's your uh, opinion about using calcium citrate versus calcium carbonate? Yeah, actually, calcium citrate for my po- uh, older postmenopausal, you know, regular patient who comes to my clinic, that's my default. I do think the absorption is uh, better. And even for the elderly, because they have decreased gastrin production and gastric acid as you get older, right? right. Even if they're not on PPI. Um, and I do think it's better tolerated. There's not as much constipation, not as much of the gassiness or bloating that they get from calcium carbonate. But there are patients, of course, who will say they can't tolerate this. And I'll say, okay, let's try this one. <laughs> and then you go to whatever you can tolerate is fine. Yeah, I seem to get I seem to get that patient a lot where I'm just negotiating just to get them on anything that might help. Yeah, yeah, and you can say, well, hey, drink almond milk and you get 450 milligrams of calcium per glass, and you know maybe we can right. get 1,200 that way. None of that, the magnesium and phosphorus and everything else in the almond milk too. Yeah, yeah. When when we go to put patients on bisphosphonates, it there's often an uphill battle for us as primary care doctors because there's a lot of scary things out there in the news on that. Do you have like, do you have a way of getting around that or kind of reassuring patients? To be honest, that is widespread and it's affecting all of us. Um, in the Bowen clinics, we spend at least 10 minutes, um, describing or talking about, uh, alleviating concerns 
And what we're doing right now, we're in the middle of doing is developing some decision aids and hopefully we'll make it available um, through the ACE website, uh, kind of a pictorial representation that goes through patients' fracture risk, what is the risk of these rare adverse events, what is the risk of not being treated, uh, you know, because they hear so much about the side effects. What they don't know is, hey, if you don't take it, you have a 40% chance of breaking a bone versus a 0.0001% risk of a ONJ or atypical fracture of the femur. But it does take time, I agree with you, and you just have to be ready for that. <laughs> I think the visual aid is a great, we, we actually had a morning report. One of our residents presented, uh, it was a study on prostate cancer and PSA testing using a visual aid. My critique of the study was that the visual aid was not, uh, it, it was very difficult to understand. So I'll just, you know, when you, when you design yours, I'll encourage you to make it, make it look pretty and, and as minimal. Oh, I know. Exactly. We're involving the, uh, impact graphics, which is the design group of ACE. <laughs> it's, okay. It's, it's gotta be visually appealing. So you have some professional designers on there. That's yeah. good. Yes. That's yes. good. Okay. We, uh, so a frequent question we get is about, uh, we, we run a consult service where we see a lot of hip fractures. And when these patients come in with broken hips and they're getting hardware placed, should we worry about starting them right on a bisphosphonate? And, and the reason we would like to start them on a bisphosphonate early is because oftentimes they might come to us months after their fracture and they haven't been started on a bisphosphonate yet because maybe they've been kicking around a rehab. Yeah, so we did, uh, we just developed an inpatient protocol for our institution, and it's kind of similar to what's out there on the bone, etc. cetera. Uh, one of the first things we check in the elderly is their vitamin D level, and if a lot of them, a significant portion of them will be D deficient, right? So that's the first thing that you address, correct their vitamin D deficiency, get them on calcium. And that takes care of that couple of weeks that, you know, they're healing anyway. So very few people are not deficient and those who are not, I am pretty sure that if you start them on a bisphosphonate, the long-term benefit is uh, much greater than, and, and there will be significant, uh, you know, impact on overall fracture risk. And do you recommend starting an IV bisphosphonate or oral bisphosphonate in that case? Um, you know, not necessarily. So actually, um, once again, I'll refer you to the algorithm of ACE. We break, we have two groups of people. One is moderate fracture risk. So these are just a regular, say, 65-year-old, no prior fracture, T-score negative 2.5, versus the high fracture risk group, which includes the older population and possibly status post-hip fracture. So we recommend... A slightly stronger, the slightly stronger agents, the three injectables for the high fracture risk group, the nosumab, uh, zoledronic acid, teriparatide would be options, although it would totally not be incorrect to get them on orals too, because there is fracture risk, hip fracture risk reduction with alendronate and residronate. So get them on something. <laughs> okay. And did you tell us how many weeks you all wait until before you start them on something? Or was it? Um, so typically, if I start someone with a vitamin D level of 15, I would repeat the level, say, two to three months later. Um, and I feel 
at that point that I'm not doing her a disservice by not treating her because I think that repleting vitamin D, uh, you know, has a positive impact on her bones and her healing rate too. And and starting the bisphosphonate would be around, would, do you wait that After, two to three months? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So ideally they're seen by a physician uh, at that two to three month point, you have a repeat vitamin D level, and then you can uh, decide on what medication to use. I have, I've seen a fair number of patients and uh, let's just say Cashlac, uh, some patients, they're on drugs for a long time and they, they might move around primary care doctors. I found patients that are on bisphosphonates for 11 years or 12 years. Are there, is there anybody that you keep on them for more than 10 years? Yeah, right now, uh, because of the concerns, uh, the very high risk patients, I would treat them for 10 years with oral and six years with, uh, say, IV Zoledronic uh, acid, and then I'll give them a drug holiday. Uh, during the drug holiday, you could use another agent because if they truly are high fracturous, they could fracture during the drug holiday. Right. Um, so short holiday, consider using an agent. Some of the patients I don't, you know, uh, I don't use anything, and then I get them back on treatment in a year or two. Back on a bisphosphonate. You, after your drug holiday, you can choose. You can go back to the old bisphosphonate. You can switch to denosumab uh, if they had not been on that or, you know, try something else or even go to teriparatide if, um, you know, if that is what the clinical scenario warrants. And, and generally, how long is that drug holiday? Yeah. So for patients who are moderate, uh, younger patients, um, and uh, they were on bisphosphonate, say, for five years, seven years. The drug holiday can last for a couple of years. So you have some endpoints, right? Number one, if your patient has an osteoporotic fracture during the holiday, they're done with the holiday. Go back to treatment. Number two, look at their bone density. If their bone density declines beyond the least significant change for your machine, which presuming that the machine is reliable and accurate, of course. And then thirdly, if you use bone resorption markers, um, there could be a signal there. The rising markers of bone resorption can be a signal that the holiday should be ending soon. But we did not specifically set thresholds on, um, you know, how much of an increase uh, or how many percent. But typically, if you uh, did a bone marker before treatment and your patient who's on the drug holiday is already back to pre-treatment levels, then that probably tells you that you should resume treatment. And and I, I wasn't aware that after the drug holiday, it, it sounds almost like you treat that as like the clock is reset. They can go on another five-year or 10-year course at that point. Yes. Point. Yes. Yeah, actually, uh, it is there. Unfortunately, we don't have, uh, you know, any study that tells us, you know, how much of a risk reduction happens. Well, we do the drug holiday because we're trying to avoid these very rare adverse events. Right. Um, And during the holiday, what happens to the risk? There's no study, but there's a Swedish study 
Uh, it's imperfect to answer this question, but when they looked at patients who were off bisphosphonates for a year, the number of atypical fractures uh, in that group was much less than the patients who were on bisphosphonates for uh, you know a longer time. Wow. So I, I had no idea that you could uh, put people back on it for another 10 years if they had completed 10 years. Uh, so I guess... Is this correct then if if their bone density is if their bone density has improved on therapy and you give them a drug holiday and uh, if you check every one or two years and their bone density is staying stable, then you can potentially they don't need to go back on treatment. But if you give them a holiday and their bone density drops at all, um, then then I guess you would need to put them back on treatment. Yes, yes. So the other thing is, um, even if your patient is stable, if something happens clinically that increases their fracture risk, say that suddenly they're put on high-dose steroids, then you should probably protect them. Or your patient gets a stroke and is now falling every other month, then that puts her in a higher fracture risk uh, group too. I guess my, I think this might be one of the last questions on bisphosphonates. When somebody is on, let's say you have somebody on a zoledronic acid and they're three years into it, they started out with osteoporosis and their, their bone density tests are still coming back as osteoporosis, not really improving. Do you, are you switching to another agent at that time or do you finish out the six years and then, then think about switching? Yeah. So that's a very good question. And, uh, the question is, what is successful therapy and what is failure of therapy? So in uh, osteoporosis treatment, if your bone density is staying stable, that's okay. That is considered good because the natural trend is to go down and you've prevented the decline. If there is an increase in bone density, that's also good. Failure of therapy in general would be if they have recurrent fractures I mean, one fracture alone, you know, you probably can't make a decision right there. But if someone keeps uh, having spine fractures, then something has to be done differently. The other thing is if you see a, a bone density decline, uh, that's progressive. So not just in, you know, you always there's so many uh, incorrectly red bone densities out there. You have to really know your machine and make sure you're relying on, you know, it's reliable because you make so many major decisions. Anyway, if you see that the bone density declines year one and then year two, and it's always going down, then that's probably also failure of treatment. I would consider, um, you know, doing something different. In our algorithm, we outlined what to do for patients who are failing treatment. So it might be worth a look. So we, we want to be very respectful of your time. We have maybe one or two more questions, and we just want to ask you what your take-home points are. Um, real quick, the uh, National Osteoporosis Foundation recommends uh, testing bone mineral density in men over the age of 70. What do you feel about this practice? I think it's good to do it because there are men who develop osteoporosis. If they already have had fractures, I think definitely get a DEXA scan. If they're developing a vertebral deformity, if they're hypogonadal, um, I would do a bone density or other secondary causes like primary hyperpara. Routine testing uh, is recommended. I think it's a good idea uh, if it can be covered by the uh, carrier or third-party payer or Medicare. 
Can we ask you for some take-home points for our listeners? Well, as the president of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and having just published the 2016 guidelines and algorithm, I would I would highly recommend everyone to read it. It is the latest guidelines in the U.S. for osteoporosis, and we try to make it clearer for clinicians, you know, what to do for what kind of patient. Uh, issues such as calcium and vitamin D, it's all in there. Um, on calcium supplementation, uh, you know, there's a lot of reassurance that I think needs to be done to the patients because they're all concerned about cardiovascular events, but there's also a big downside to having calcium deficiency. And so our recommendation is 1,200 milligrams for postmenopausal women and 1,000 milligrams for men, but that does not all have to come from supplements. It's probably better if it comes from food. So you have to get your intake up to the recommended amount. Uh, in terms of vitamin D, you know, vitamin D deficiency is indeed quite, quite common. Um, you know, the doses will depend on the patient and, uh, I also recommend that don't just go for vitamin D level, that secondary hyperparathyroidism by itself has detrimental effects uh, on the bones. So uh, don't just go for correcting your vitamin D to 30 if there is secondary hyperparathyroidism. If there is hypocalciuria, then those endpoints should also be addressed. Wonderful. This, uh, this answered a lot of questions. As usual, I found out a few things that I'm doing incorrectly. It's okay, Matt. It's fun to uh, chat with you guys. Good oh, luck. It, it was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good night. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles. Books. Were there any books or websites mentioned on this one? Well, you know, no, no, you know what? I was going to ask you what books you were going to mention this time. Anything? Uh, I'm reading Cryptonomicon. I would highly recommend that one. Cryptonomicon. Uh, it's pretty long. Though. Not Game of Thrones this time? Nah. Th those are good. Those are good. Okay. I'm still waiting for the new one. Um, anyway, you can articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show mm. at thecurbsiders.com forward slash, slash podcast. podcast. I got it that time. <laughs> Please subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, still only five reviews. You know what? You know what? Just stop. I We need to have a moment of silence for the fact that we have no reviews. Thank you. Now, please write a review. It, yeah, thank you. Uh, that's enough said about that. You can contact us directly. We would love to hear your feedback. Thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Wait, we have a we have an email? Uh, yeah, I mean... How many emails have you received at that email? Two or three. Good. Were they uh, all from they you? Were... No, it was spam. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Matthew Otto. Oh, yeah, I I'm still Stuart. Okay. Kent. <laughs> all right, Kent. Uh, see you later. See you later.